We've been looking at the structure of our relationship with God. Relationship has a structure. Um, it is a covenantal structure by which God commits himself to us and we commit ourselves to him. Um, I just realized that sometimes using the word structure, it's, it's the word structure is sort of can sometimes be very ab abstract. And we can like to use the word, the word structure but not really know what we're talking about. Uh, structure has to do with the fact that um, as far as, far as relationship is concerned, there are promises made and there are things that tie us to commitments that we make. And there are certain things about relationship that involve commitments if, it, if the relationship is going to be a stable and a fruitful relationship. Sometimes what can happen is that we see um, the lack of structure in relationships and people go by, by fee our feelings or our own... Uh, desires and our own passions rather than a commitment to particular covenant and we spoke about the fact that this that the covenant relationship that we have with God is structured by vows the fear of the Lord and by trust there are other things that that that, that but sometimes what can happen is that some uh, Christians can feel that they're not going anywhere in their relationship with God they are Relationship with God's up and up and down, and it doesn't actually move forward. Doesn't grow, and uh, and I believe that it's because of the lack of that covenantal relationship. You've not made commitments, vows, or fear, uh, or, or or have a, a way of listening to Him on the other side. Um, and so, the lack of structure, the lack of that, causes our relationship to not go anywhere with God. And it becomes unfruitful. It's the same with our marriage, our friendships that we have. And if you find that your relationship with God is not going anywhere, it's not growing, it may be that your relationship with God lacks commitment, lacks things that tie you to a regularity of promises made and covenants that are necessary in order for precious things to emerge later on. So a lot of times in relationships, especially in this uh, postmodern era, era, we go a lot by feelings and by emotions and by the emotion of the day. And what we have is that relationships actually end up in nothing more than, than sentimentality. Yeah. And a lot of times in marriages as well, the sentiment is strong at the beginning. Do you know what, sent you know what sentimentality is, right? It's emotion in excess of the substance, right? Sentimentality is emotion expressed or words expressed in excess of the actual real reality or the truth. And what we have is a lot of times marriages that are based upon two things. And you see this in uh, our media, sex and romance. And everything is, is, is converging upon these two thin elements. And what the, 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 the world tries to tell us is that those are the two most explosive, the most significant things in, in, in any kind of relationship. Passion or um, in romance and sex. 
The, the thing about it is that these things pass by very fast. They are not the precious things about any relationship. How many of you know that? The precious things in relationship only happen when you get older. They are the fruitful things. They are the rich things that actually happen. The romance and uh, the erotic aspects of that, the exciting aspects of things, last, they're not nothing. They actually uh, are, they are nurtured by truth and, and, uh, and, and what I call this structured relationship, the love that is proven in commitments. And as a result of that, um, we experience the good of, of relationship, the good of marriage, uh, the, the fruitfulness later. And so our relationship with God is often like that. Many people don't go very far in their relationship with God because of the fact that they go by their feelings. I love God. I love God so much. I love God so much. And, and when we feel good about it, God, good about God, then we follow Him. And then after that, we don't. The relationship is structured. It is grown by decisions in which uncomfortable things actually happen. And that is something that we've been talking about. Many people don't go very far in their relationship and feel very frustrated in their, in their relationship with God because of the lack of that structure. It's all passion and all feeling, which is not wrong. It's, it's great. It's actually a fruit of commitment. But they don't feel that they are going far in their relationship with God. And so because of that, they don't come to that sweet part where as a result of these vows, fidelity, looking, from, looking at the other person and considering the other more important than them, loving the other person more than we love ourselves, submitting our own desires to the desires of the other, we really get the precious things, the special things, the things of intimacy. Uh, scripture speaks about this, and we talked about it last Sunday, about the secret of the Lord being with them that fear Him. And sometimes we can be people who don't like the word fear. The, fo- the word fear is a bogey word, but last week we tried to talk about fear in a, in a sort of a, in a way that is not a cringing fear, but a fear that comes out of a regard of God, a regard for God. You regard God more than you regard yourself. And so, there is this way in which sometimes our, our relationships can be actually uh, uh, reduced to sentimentality or just the, the, the dysfunctionalities that we have in our own soul. Yeah? And so, because of that, a lot of times people enter into relationship with God or a relationship with their, their spouses in such a way that they are looking for the spouse or they're looking for that significant other to do something for them. They're constantly sucking. They're constantly needing that. Because there's no structure. There's no commitment. There's no covenant. And so a lot of times we can find, even whether it's in church or it's in, uh, in, uh, in, our, in our relationships with one another, situations in which, you know, we're like babies that, in which the umbilical cord has not been cut. And you're waiting for someone to be able to attach it to. And you're looking for someone to be your mother. Can you please be my mother? 
And they come to church, and they pull out their umbilical cord that's been there. It's an invisible umbilical cord. And they come, I see you. You look really compassionate. I really like you. Can you be my mother? Suck, 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 suck. And then when that doesn't work, they go to another one. And that, can you be my mother? Or can you be my provider? You know, today we saw in communion that Jesus says he eagerly wants to be that one to us. Isn't that amazing? Our, our, our provider. He wants to be our everything. And so, I want to put it to you that there is a, a way in which our culture has um, reduced us to the sum total of our passions. Yeah? As a result of that, because of this, there's a way in which our identity has now become reduced to what our passions are. It is an indication of the shallow culture that a person's identity is now reduced to and defined by their erotic desires. Whether it's gay, or it's heterosexual, or it's something else. That somehow in the, in, in, in the, in, in the beyond end of all, defined by that. And may I suggest to you that God has made us something so much more than that. And it is only after we are able to go past that, that we are able to say the riches that God has for us. Are about this, that um, um, vows, the fear of God and trust, some of the things that we will actually focus on um, as we look at um, our relationship with God being increased. Let's turn to Luke chapter 5. And we, sh- we'll show about, we show a little bit about how Peter began to grow in his relationship with God, with Jesus, even from that little incident. Turn with me to... Luke chapter 5, we read it from verse 1. It, now it happened that while the crowd was pressing upon him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gan- Gennesaret, that's Jesus, and he saw two boats lying on the edge of the lake. But the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. So the fishermen were not in the boats, okay? They were not in the boats including Peter. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, Simon Peter, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. Verse 6, when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man or depart sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, 
sons of Zebedee who are partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear from now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought left everything and followed, it, followed him, he spoke about the fact that God was actually bringing Peter into a knowledge of him that caused him to fear him, not because his fear was cringing, but because of the fact that the fear came out of a revelation. Suddenly a burst of revelation came upon Peter so that he... Before that, he couldn't. And we spoke about three, three uh, stages in the development of the fear of the Lord in intimacy with God. First of all, we have regard to Jesus. P Peter had respect for Jesus. He had regard for him. He didn't have a revelation of Jesus. He didn't really know who he was. But he said, okay, Jesus, you're the carpenter, but I'm the fisherman. I know better than you, but I'm going to have regard to you. And he was open to Jesus. And after that, when he obeyed him, a miracle took place. But the miracle was was uh, um, prepared for by Peter's attitude towards Jesus. The fear of the Lord is not just a bad psychological disposition. Fear is not always a bad psychological disposition. Fear is, can sometimes come when you realize who you are in front of, especially with God. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear Him. They've caught something. They've seen something. They caught a revelation of something. And this is something that will cause us to enter into the knowledge of God, which will cause us to grow in our relationship with God. But it's interesting that at the end of the, 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 that, that incident, not only was there a miracle, but there was such a revelation of, of, of Jesus that Peter thought, I can't stand in the presence of Jesus. He's God. I mean, he knew exactly what I was thinking. He knew all the mixed feelings that I had about what he was saying. And he can penetrate through me. And it took Jesus saying, fear not, for the fear to be removed. Isn't that amazing? Now, we want to get to the fear to be removed quickly by saying, oh, no, 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 Jesus is a teddy bear. Jesus, he loves us. He doesn't care about our sin. He really doesn't, doesn't matter. You can come any way you want. All that is true. But it comes at a tremendous agon, a tremendous price. A tremendous price that is no small deal that caused Jesus to have to go to the cross. But if you don't understand that, you won't have the fear of the Lord. There's an appreciation of who He is. Now, I see this in our eagerness sometimes as Christians to, to absolve everybody of any, any problems that we can be accepted by God solely on the basis of the fact that we are beautiful or they are wonderful or we are talented or we are wise or we are everything. And we can sometimes cheapen the, 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 the grace of God. You know, those of you who know Bonhoeffer, you know the whole idea of cheap, cheap grace. In which by not going through the agon, the process by which God actually takes us through real realization, we actually don't really know God. All we know is that how to plaster words of exoneration upon people, upon our children, upon ourselves as well. But we never really know about God because all we know is an idea. What God wants to do is to come into our boat personally and to cause us to have a personal knowledge of Him. Not a knowledge of not a knowledge that may be a true idea, an idea that is factually correct and theologically correct. But most of us interact with our thoughts. We thought we, we interact with thoughts about God. And what we try to do is to actually sieve out those thoughts so that we have the better thoughts, the more positive thoughts about God, so that we relate to more positive thoughts about God. We don't actually relate to God. 
What God wants to do is to give us knowledge that comes from Him coming to our boat. Amen? So the first thing you see in Luke chapter 5 is Jesus came. There was nobody in the boat. And, he, and there were two boats there. He comes into Peter's boat. And then the first thing I want to say is this. Jesus wants to be in personal relationship with you because there are times in which you will discern it in your life. Jesus came to you. He picked your boat. Sometimes it's through circumstances. Sometimes they're difficult circumstances. But he comes to you in such a personal way. And you've got to know that. You've got to know that you're not interacting with an idea, a true idea, a theological idea, or a religious idea, or anything like that. You're in, rea- re- relating to someone. Not something. But someone whose heart went out eagerly towards you, as we heard. Who wants you to be, to cause him to be your food. He serves a table for you, but he's the food. And it costs him. Amen? So the first thing we want to know is this. To know God, you have to know him personally. To know that he's the one who made the first move towards you. He's the one who went to Peter. Peter was outside of the boat. But that's the first stage. He comes into into our lives by, by coming into our boat. How many of you would like Jesus to come into your boat? How many of you have enough problems that you know that I, if Jesus doesn't come into my boat, I'm sunk? But man, what's really important to us to understand is, is, is this, that we are not dealing with an idea about God. Even though most of our thought is about a thought about God. Is he going to do this? Is he going to do that? Is he, the, does, is, he, is he this kind of God or is he that kind of God? We deal, we relate to ideas. And that is the problem for many Christians. We relate to ideas and ideals. We, we relate to words, concepts, and even if they are true concepts, even though they are religious and orthodox concepts, we relate to concepts. Jesus relates to us personally. And the kind of knowledge that he wants us to have of him is the knowledge that he himself discloses to him. He takes the box, opens out the box, shows the box, shows what's in the box. He himself does it. He does it in that way in which he calls us first. And I want to put it to you that God has gone into your boat. He has gone into your boat and he's waiting for you. That he doesn't, he's not dealing with you as a statistic, as just one of a crowd. He doesn't say, for God so loved the world, and I'm part of the all the world. No, He speaks to you personally, in your tragedy, in your loss, in your difficulty, in your joys, even in your successes and your failures. Some of us feel desolate. And Isaiah chapter 54 says, He comes to say, more will be the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife. Isn't that amazing? The first thing that we have to understand about any kind of relationship with God is that we're not relating to ideas or thoughts or theology or, or these things. These things are secondarily things that try to describe with faulting, faltering words the truth, the actual solid truth. What uh, St. Anselm called the solida veritas, the truth that is really solid, it has mass in it. It is more dense than anything else. And so, let's go back to Luke chapter 5. He saw two boats lying, verse 2, on the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them. They were not there. 
And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people on the boat. I think that some, most of us Christians want Jesus on the boat. How many of you in my boat? I want Jesus in my boat. And that is the first stage. I think that's the first stage when we invite Jesus to come into our lives. Yeah. Now, the thing about it is this. He comes in and he teaches. So he taught in the boat. Now, Peter was not in the boat. He was outside. Jesus is in his boat. But Peter was not in the boat. It's really true. I think Thomas Aquinas said, when God comes on the inside of us, He's inside us. But we are outside. We are outside of ourselves. That's why in Psalm 116 it says, Return unto your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. The rest is where God is. We are to relate to Him. We are nothing besides Him. We are constantly defining ourselves by all kinds of secondary issues. But that is not who we are. Those are secondary outflows of who we are, perhaps. Whether it's our education or the particularities of our life, of our history. But who we are is Jesus in us. When Jesus speaks to us and He talks to us, He's speaking to us who have been totally alienated from who we are. We have been so far outside, we are relating to all the things out there that we don't even know who we are. And that is why we have come so far to be able to define each other by our own erotic impulses. We are reduced to our eroticism. We are reduced to our own sentimentality. What God's saying is this, no, you have to find who you are because you have to find me. Return unto your rest, O my soul. And when Jesus comes into your boat, you have to know this. He is more in your boat than you are in the boat yourself. Now, I don't mean now you have to find out about yourself and, and, and discover all your history and all that. No, that is not going to do it because you can find out all the facts about yourself, but if you're not connected with Jesus and you're not submerged into Him, all those facts are actually incidentals. They are accidentals and incidentals. But the, when we come into Jesus and we say, I give that up. I give that up for you so that you are my life. What happens is this. We come into the boat that Jesus has for us. He does not want to just teach you things and teach me things. He wants to do stuff in your boat. Amen? And that stuff that He does, I into a revelation of Him that will cause fear, but it will only be relieved by the grace of God. Amen? Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears. How precious did that grace appear? Not cheap. Not something like you say, oh, God, 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 God loves you anyway. It doesn't matter. Sin doesn't matter. How gracious, precious did that grace appear? The hour I first believed. Isn't that amazing? And so, I remember the days when I was, for the first time, having Jesus in my boat in a conscious way. 
The charismatic movement had come to Malaysia and for the first time, I saw that God was alive and that He was alive and that He could actually be in my life. I was so dry. At that time, I was about 20 years old. I was so dry that just the fact that Jesus could come and be in my boat and that even would, He would even bat an eyelid for me or even look at me um, askance uh, or rather look at me with peripheral vision, I was just like, hey, I'll take it, whatever I got. I was God and so rejected, the sense of rejection from God was so strong in my life that if God would just bat an eyelid on me, just look at me just from, from peripheral vision, I would be happy. I could, I could die just happy that Jesus was there. He came into my boat. And I, for, many, for many years, I wondered, is that Jesus coming into my boat? Or is it just me imagining it? But there came a point in my life when I had gone through a crisis and God did a miracle in helping me to pass my exams. And in that, I thought, you came into my boat. You are real. You are no longer an idea. I have to live with respect to you. And I began to realize I can't live in thought anymore. I cannot live in thought about God. I need to relate to God. Hebrews chapter, uh, I believe it's uh, chapter 4 verse 13. Neither is there any creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. What, what you have to do with is a, a person and not an idea. What you have to do with is not people around you or your future or your disabilities, but with God with whom you have to do. Because in God, everything else is swallowed up. And we have people who are outside of our boat because of the fact we are relating to everything else except Him with whom we have to do. And so may, may, may I just belabor the point a little bit. We are not knowledge of God in terms of facts or theology or ideas or thoughts about God. We are dealing with the God Himself. And we will be brought before God one day. It is God with whom we, we, can, we, we have to deal. There will be times in which some of us think when we compare ourselves with other people, we are pretty good. But the margin and the, and the standard by which we are going to be hauled up before is the standard of God. C.S. Lewis says, it matters not what we think about God. In other words, you're saying, it doesn't matter what the theologians say, or the pastors say, or you and I say. It matters infinitely more what God thinks of you. But we don't want to think about that, do we? Makes us feel bad, right? We have this burden of the fact that we will one day have to face God and be examined. And we'll have to face the one who cannot be faced because of his glory and his fearsomeness. We're an evangelical church, and yet we still say that. And the fact is this, we're saddled with the burden of our own deficiency before a God who is utterly perfect. <laughs> and it is in this place where we need Him to come to us. We need Him to say, I lift you up. You are accepted in the Beloved. 
I eagerly desired for you to eat me. Isn't that amazing? And every one of us has to experience it personally. It's not enough for us to get the pass and say, okay, this, this many billion people to go past in an impersonal way. No, God wants for us to not just know that we have been saved, but to experience it per- personally. Amen? And so I was in, in the charismatic movement, I was for the first time felt Jesus is in my boat. But the problem with that is that now I had to think of the fact that because Jesus is real, he's not just an idea, he's not just an idea of, 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 of Christian philosophy, but he is real. I had to say, where do I stand with him? Does he care for me? Does he love for me? Does he see disappointed with me? Is his standard so high that I would be slain before him? I did not know that. But some of us, as Christians, never go further because of the fact that they are quite happy that Jesus is in the boat and they live under his teaching. But they've not really known him yet. It's tragic. He's in the boat. He's in the boat there for them. But they are elsewhere. And so Jesus found that the fishermen were washing their nets. And the implication was that Peter, because it says that all of them, that the fishermen had gone, gotten out of them and were also washing his nets, as he should be. And God comes and in the person of Jesus. Verse 3, he says, He got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put away from the land and he sat down and began teaching the people from the boats it is possible to be absent to jesus and present to his teaching what say you and miss it completely do you know your bible don't feel don't have to feel uncomfortable <laughs> i saw somebody very honest no no <laughs> I wish I knew it more than I do now. I've got to tell you, I know my Bible. This is my Bible. I know it. I know it so well. I know every detail about this Bible. You want me to tell you about this Bible? Goat skin. Goat skin. Not Highland goat skin, which is more expensive, but goat skin. One step lower. Better than Morocco leather, because Morocco leather is three times lower. But I know my Bible. It has three ribbons. Beresford ribbons, of course, made of silk. Do you know your Bible? I know my Bible. The pages, 28 GSM. 28 GSM. Edge lined. You know what's edge lined? Edge lined means if you read one page, the line is coordinated with the next page so much so that the next page's lines will not clash with the previous page lines. Edge lined. How do you do you know your Bible? I know my Bible, man. 
published by Youngblood in the Netherlands. It has a half yap, which means the cover doesn't go all the way. That would be full yap. This is half yap. But I know my Bible. But you will say, you don't really know your Bible. You know things about the Bible on one dimension. But you don't know what the Bible is saying. Right? So the intellectual will say, well, you don't know what the Bible means. And Jesus would say, That's, you need that too. But you need to know what I am saying to you. You must know me because I'm in your boat and I want to be with you. That is unheard of. It is unheard of. I went to the old... Uh, the, the old archives bookstore which sells academic theological books. And uh, I was surprised to pick up a very old little book. And I opened the book and I realized it was written by a very, very well-known Old Testament scholar. Yeah, And he had a thing that's written, and I bought the book because of the fact that I knew he was dead. There's no way I could get in touch with this scholar, but the, because of the fact that this book was owned by him, and for some reason, maybe after he died, his wife or his family said, chuck it off to archives bookstore. And it's very precious to me because it has his signature on it. But with Jesus... He wants to be in a living and a dynamic way in relationship with us. I can say I know my Bible in this way, made by Skylar, but I don't know him. And so sometimes what we can do is that in our relationship with God, He is in our, in our, in our boat, but everything that we hear from him is not objective according to what he wants but according to our own subjective interpretation of what he wants and it takes the fear of god to be able to hear him in such a way that there is a humility by which we don't try to control the text but we actually worship him and we read him in a worshipful way in a humble way amen in a prayerful way. One of the things that um, musicians, creative musicians, so to speak, talk about is being able to take a song, take a piece of music, and play it the way they, they know how to play it. And for those of you who are musicians, you know what it is. It means to be playing by ear, yeah? Playing faithfully by ear. What it is is that you can listen to a piece of music and the first thing to be able to, to hear the music is to be able to re reproduce it as it is actually played, as you hear Woohoo! Yeah? You play it as it's, as, it's, as it's played. You play it faithfully. So it's an exercise in years 
to be able to hear it and to be able to get the right chords and, to the, and get the right voicings in this hearing. Correct? So I've always been, that, 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 when I was in my younger, younger days, um, trying to play a song, any pop song or any kind of song, by ear. And for me, to play by ear means to be able to catch what the chord is, catch what the voicings are. Correct? Yeah? Okay. If not, you're not actually playing by ear fully. You haven't caught it all. But what happens is this. We have nowadays musicians who can't do that. And what they do is that they play their own version. And their chords are crap. Their chords are hopeless. They are not anywhere as complex as the chords of the original. But they say, I'm creative. You're not creative. You're deficient. You don't know how to play the chords. You can't hear it. You can't hear it. So you may say you're being creative, but you're actually playing creativity at a much lower level. So what happens is that with Christians, we don't have structure in our relationship with God. So sometimes we don't hear Him correctly. We hear Him as we want to interpret Him. When Jesus is in the boat, He teaches us. But He brings us to the bar, and this is where this becomes a, a huge um, a game changer. Okay, let's look at, look at this in uh, uh, Luke chapter 5. Okay, Luke chapter 5. So he began teaching the people from the boat, verse 3, verse 4. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. All right. So he's in the boat. It costs us a little bit, but it's nice to have Jesus in the boat because he's, he loves us, he cares for us, he takes care of us, he feeds us, he feeds us with himself, all that, that. That's wonderful, great stuff. He accepts us and he loves us and all that. And he puts us as part of his personally interested in us and then he brings us to the place where we will either cross the bar enter into the port the portal into really knowing him in the dimension that he is in that supernatural heavenly dimension not the dimension that is like what i just described you about how i know know the bible no not that dimension but the dimension of him knowing him as he is knowing him as a god who is awesome Knowing him as a God who is not just a teddy bear who is rather inert, but who is just surrounded by thoughts and knowing those thoughts. But knowing him as he really is. And it's a frightening thing to fall into the hands of the living God, the scripture says. It's a frightening thing. Because it's, when, he, when, he, when he comes to you and you know him, you will die. If you know him as he is, you will die. You can't teddy bear him. He is an awesome God. And one day we will be hauled up before Him to be examined. And what happens is this, we come to a place where God says, I came into your boat. I want you to bring, to be brought to where I am so that you can be my partner. What? Me being your partner? Yes. Put your boat out a little bit. Let your nets down. And when that happens, we come face to face with every fear that we have. Every element of control. 
Every part of us that wanted to use the Bible to make us more successful, make us more prosperous, wellness and all that. We come against all that and what Jesus says, to this, do this thing that's going to shame you in front of all that crowd that I started preaching to. Now they're going to be there and they'll be there to see, see, see what you're doing. And the crowd will look at you and you will see and they will know clean the nets and now you're going to go out and then put down the nets exactly where there was nothing and you will show how incompetent you are and jesus says and that's where you will hit the portal into the heavenly realm other than that you just know me as somebody in your boat you will know my teaching you know all that but you don't know me as 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 someone who's participating in the works that i do this is the this is the portal this is the boundary my friends this is what's going to dis- determine, the, the separate you be- between you being a person who participates in heavenly things and miracles and the one who just follows in the boat and nothing happens or you're not even in the boat. This is the, this is the way God, God brings us to. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God because when you do, He'll kill you and fit you for heaven. Because the resurrection is not available to someone who hasn't died. Knowledge of God is not available beyond thought for someone who hasn't died. Amen? Can you tell me when you died? Can you tell me, please, when you died? Because when you died and you crossed the portal, you entered into something that was never the same again. You suddenly realized, oh my God, He is alive. Woe is me, for I am undone. And so Jesus invites Peter to come into this place and lay his life down and he says, I'm going to give you a miracle, just do that. And Peter experiences the fear, not the fear of the Lord in the, in the New Testament sense, but in the Old Testament sense. The Old Testament sense has a sense of, sense of fear of the Lord as, a, as, a, as, a, as an attitude of reverence towards God. So Peter doesn't argue with Jesus. He knows. He doesn't have that revelation yet, but he knows. He has that attitude. He has a good attitude. He says, you know, Master, you're a carpenter. I don't know how many years of fishing you've had, but I submit my greater, far greater experience to yours. We fished all night. So you're wanting us to go back and reverse all those hours of washing the nets and go back to where there was no fish and fish where there was no fish in front of everybody. And Peter, not because he had a great revelation of God, but because in the chapter before, he had come to his house and healed his mother. So he knew enough. May I suggest to you that all of us probably have enough enough to have a good attitude not enough to have a revelation but have a good saying i demand i demand you i demand your life and i'm not satisfied that i'm in your boat but he had enough and so he comes and he does that and when he does that he enters into the portal he enters into the heavenly realm and he suddenly sees heaven open up he didn't just do a brave thing that's really important 
He didn't just do a bold thing that some people have that DNA to, to become bold and all that. No, he was a person whose boldness failed him. His boldness failed him. His boldness flew away and took wing and left him behind, desolate. He's, he's a person who has a bold guy. He's, a, he's, a, he's one of those guys who's like... <laughs> but it failed him. And just when it failed him and he had nothing left, Jesus said, put out your net. And he has to choose whether he's going to stay as per, a person in the boat with Jesus' teaching or he will actually participate with Jesus' works. And it's in this place that God wants to do a work and He wants to bring you up to where He is. That you will never have a worry about whether you're accepted by God or not. Amen? I want to put it to you that for some of us, we've been in church for years and years and donkey's years. We've been in Sunday school, we've been in all these things, but we are still in the same boat as Jesus, not doing the things that He's done. You know your Bible, sure. But you don't know the participation with Jesus. Jesus wants this for you and me, to, for us to eat of Him every day. And I don't know how many people will respond to this, but I'm saying, Jesus invites us to come sup with me. Come and partake of that. Not be bold. Not be thick-skinned. Not be this risky kind of risk-taker and all that, that great entrepreneur. Not that, not, not that, although those things are good. Not that, but die to yourself. Because there's a portal, you are right there. And here's Peter, he's right on the edge of the portal, right there. It's only one step. It's only one step. And one step could determine someone who just is in church, hearing the teaching every day, and someone who's entered in participation with God. It will determine the difference between someone, it will determine the difference between someone who's, who remains in his thought and never grows and someone who enters into what God has and grows and the miracles change them. And so he did. And God did more than provide more fishies for him. God actually broke the spiritual atmosphere around him so that there was a burst of revelation knowledge that he knew who he was. And he says, depart from me. It's a blessing. Suddenly he saw Jesus for who he was. He did not need any convincing. Amen? I was in the charismatic movement, as I, as I shared with you, hungry for God and all that. With all the people that I had brought to the Lord came to a certain stage in their spiritual life and somehow could not go any further. I prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. I prayed for hours, but none of those prayers seemed to make any difference. And then one day, this woman, who was a few years my junior, walked through the arts concourse and came up to me. God has not finished with you that. You just pointed at me. He's not finished with you yet. You have been going around this mountain for long enough. 
it's time to climb the mountain. She just said that. She did not know me. But she just came up to me and says, come to our church. I believe God has a word for you. Later on, I found out she was trembling in, <laughs> trembling in her boots when she was talking to me. But at that time, she was covered over by God. I was the one who was trembling. <laughs> she was trembling, I was trembling. trembling. We were both trembling. But I was the one who was more, more trembling than, than she was. So I went. I went to her church. And then I heard the message that God had for me, and that is that I have more for you, but I want you to lay down your life for me. Me into himself, and I had inklings of these things, but he was, had been kind of put, putting his, his, his hand on my heart because I had a... Uh, I had a scholarship to go and study my, uh, my PhD in the University of Illinois. I'd never been to, to America, but I was really excited about that. And, the, and she said, the Lord will continue to speak to you about that. Everything was set. My, 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 my English department was really excited about that because the idea was for me to go and then come back and then teach in the university. I had my, my, my life planned out for me. But I knew then, then I had hit the portal and she was saying, the Lord wants you completely. And I knew exactly what he did. It took me a few days, but I remember looking at my forms and tearing them up and I realized this is what God wants for me. And the Lord spoke to me in my heart very personally. The, the, ru the, the walls of my, my city are in ruins. I want you to stay back and help to build the walls. That's all. He didn't say build the walls because I don't presume to be the one who can do it, but helped. And so, I'm not a world changer, as apparently a lot of Christians are, but I was helping. And, it's, and, and, and it was in this place that God did a work. And as I have shared before, that's where the Lord said, I want you to leave your people and follow me. Leave your people. And so because of that, my life has been a life of leaving my people as his people for me to be a blessing to. And so the, 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 the word in Ruth became very clear. Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my, my God. And there are times in which I look over my shoulder and I look back at my people. I do it quite often, actually. I look back at my people and I say, I wish I could be with you. I miss you. And when I go back to Malaysia, it's sometimes difficult to come back. It's been a lot easier the past 10 years, even though the past 10 years have not been easy. But I'm in a different place now. I've left my people behind. The people of God are my people. No matter how different they are from, to me. And I, that happened for me. I knew that I hit the portal 
in around 2001, when this building came up for, for selling, and I had just read Charles Blake's book on how, as the pastor of a, a mega church, he was in a building project that didn't work out and, and, and led him into prison. Filled with these things, the idea of actually purchasing this building came to us. We had 80 people in the church. And it was costing $2.5 million. We didn't have anywhere close to that. Felt, as we sought the Lord about it, the Lord just nudged my heart and gave me a word from Isaiah 45. Go for it. I will give you the treasures of darkness and riches in hidden places. Go for it. I well knew the burden that was upon me. I could be well leading the church into an absolute disaster. And I questioned myself, is this hubris? Is this what? I'd rather you not do that, God. I'm quite happy in our place that we are worshipping and renting. It's very, very comfortable renting. But there was that place where I realized a miracle, a great miracle had to happen. And if it happens, I will never be the same again. Because I will have had to leave Michael sprawling on the ground dead behind there and step over. The Lord has a breakthrough for every single one of us. But this breakthrough is not just going to be an event that took place in your life, but it will take you over the portal. It will take you over the portal and it will make you never the same again. This is the structure of covenantal relationship. It is not lovey-dovey. It's not sentimental. It is actually serious business. But you will be a participator with God in the works that He does. And not just a reader of what happened after it happened. Amen? Okay, let's, 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 let's finish up, okay? Uh, we are in chapter, chapter 5 of Luke. Verse 5, Simon answered and said, Master, we worked all night and caught nothing. I will do as you say. Or as the NASB says, but I will do as you say. Nevertheless, it's that one little word that stands between us in our pedestrian ways and the ways of, the, of heaven in us. Nevertheless, yourself. Okay, you don't have to say it aloud. Just say it to yourself. Nevertheless, it looks terrible. Nevertheless, nevertheless, your whole life will be lived as nevertheless. Nevertheless means I'm fully cognizant of all the things that are rationally and reasonably blockages to it. I'm fully aware of the science. I'm fully aware of the actual realities. Nevertheless, those things, not less. Science, not less. Opinions of others, not less. Lack of finance, not less. Nevertheless, I will do what you say. Amen? Nevertheless, nevertheless, nevertheless. If your life is lived, nevertheless, you will see miracles. You will participate with what God does and you will know Him. And, they, and so they let down their nets. 
And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. I would put it to you that even though the others helped them, it was the ones, Peter's boat, that saw the miracle. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, <coughs> for I am sinful. I'm a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. It's amazing. It's like amazement seized him. You know, you don't only have to act upon God, God pleading with God. God will seize you when you obey Him. Amen? I want that. I want the feel of trust that happens when I'm seized by God. When I'm wanting to believe God and I don't know whether there's anything behind me or not. When I put my weight upon Him and find that when I put my weight upon Him, it is not empty, but He seizes me. Amazement seized Him. Amen? Amen. Amazement seized Him because something was found. Isn't that amazing? You know, trust is like this. Trust is not... Trust is the leaning back of our weight upon something that is there, someone who's there. Most of us lean back on thought, on thoughts or calculations. Is it reasonable? Is it going to happen? Is it not? not? But there's a way in which trust happens when we actually lean back and are not sure whether there's something behind us or not. But to trust God means to say, I'm going to lean back because I'm not going to be held up by... Because that's not going to hold me up. I'm going to be held up by you seizing me. Amen? Only a person who trusts, not a person who calculates, who trusts will experience the seizing. God has started seizing you, you will know how it feels. Yes? Have you, have you felt that? Lord, I have come with nothing in my hands, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Please, 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 please. I have no choice. I can't, no, no arguments with you. No, no, no deals to be cut with you. I have no choice. If you don't save me, I'm dead. And you lean back. In a crisis, you lean back towards God. Believing that when you lean back, you will be held up, not by thought. Not by safety of everybody else. Not by a safe place. Not by that. You'll be held up by God. Trust is personal. It's different from just trusting an idea or trusting the reasonableness of that venture. Trust is a trust, a leaning back upon someone. Only trust will make you feel that person pull, pulling you up. The upthrust of someone's hand upon you. Amen? Yes? Now, a person who trusts, who comes into that relationship with him, has experienced that. Until you've experienced the hand in an equal and opposite direction and force against the, 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 the weight of your body, the weight of your burden, unless you experience that, you don't know trust yet. Because you don't know trustworthiness. 
You don't know whether it's a hat. You can do all the calculations and feel that, yes, probably God will do that. Yes, yes, that enough scriptures in the, script, in the Bible that tells you that God can be trusted and all that. Well, unless you leave it to Him to do it, leave it to Him and give Him the option that you, He may not even do it, when He comes through, you will know it. You will so know it. So people who have trust are not just people who are trusting. They're not just credulous. It's like, I believe anything. Yee! They're not just optimists. They are people who have felt when they were falling, they deliberately did not try to break their fall, but they deliberately sought for the one who was going to find him. So when I was, when I, and I've, I've gone through many crises, I've had so many operations in my life, I can't even count. I've had more than eight operations through this, since 1989. I've had all these, and every time I have this worry that I may experience, a, what do you call, locked-in syndrome, where sometimes people, they, are, they can feel everything, and yet they can't react, and they can feel all the pain. I'm, have, I had more than eight operations, and each time I have to lean back, and I have no choice. I have to lean back to trust that God has something for me. I can't calculate. I can't sort of, um, um, you know, pussyfoot around it to God. And if I keep falling, I have to keep falling until something catches me. But when, I can't, when I'm caught by Him, I, nobody can take away that feeling from me. Amen? There's a way in which God wants to put trust. Because trust is what the structure of our relationship with Him. Amen? Some of us hope that prayer will move God's hand. And prayer does. But trust is not that. Trust has to do with the fact that it is entirely up to God to do whatever He wants with me. And by no argumentation of my part or no persuasion of my part, I want to know whether God loves me enough to carry me and to be fulfilling His word. But I make no demands upon Him. And when that happens, you will experience the hand of God. Amen? The fear of the Lord in Peter caused him to experience Jesus. And it is there that his fears were relieved. And it says here in chapter, chapter 5, Go away from me, for I am a sinful man, verse 8. Verse 9, for amazement had seized him and his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken, verse 10. And so were, Peter, were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not fear. Do not fear. For from now on you'll be catching men. And they left everything and followed him. I don't know why they left everything, but I think it's because suddenly they saw in the mix something so massive, something so all-consuming, all something so awesome, so fiery, so real, that nothing else mattered anymore. Nothing mattered. No calculation mattered. He was so massive, so huge, so that they left everything and followed him. It's almost zero-sum. It's almost as if God came on, the, came on the inside of them 
and, um, and made himself real to them. And Jesus said, do not fear. Do not fear. From now on, you'll be catching men. Isn't that amazing? So let Jesus come and say, do not fear. And not say it to yourself. It's priceless. The person who has heard Jesus saying, do not fear, will not fear. The one who's dependent on other people to say, do not fear, have every reason to fear because they haven't heard it from him. It's personal. Amen? And God wants to do a work amongst us. That's amazing. Yeah. Let me just read to you something from The Weight of Glory. C.S. Lewis talks about the, about the presence of God and the de- judgment day. And as evangelicals, we're not afraid to talk about such things. He talks about the face of God. Who can bear the face of God? Like a destroying fire. In the end, that face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or with the other, either conferring glory and inexpressible joy or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. How God thinks of us is not only more important but infinitely more important. It is written that we shall stand before him, we shall appear, shall be treated. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ. That some of us, any of us who really choose, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pity, but delighted in. A weight of burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that in Christ you have made it possible that we can stand before the judgment seat of God not with fear or condemnation but because of the great price that you paid for us with glory that we, even we who are worms can be called out by you, patted on the back, so to speak, and spoken to, well done, my good and faithful servant. Thank you, Lord. You are a God who's not abstract, but you love us personally. And so, Lord, we ask you that you take us to that place where you came into our boat. We ask you that even now that you release such a of yourself in our boat right now. Just want to invite you to just let your imagination 
fixed upon the truth of God, that He is in your boat. He is with you. And He wants to do great things in and through you. And you will not need the miserable affirmation of man affirmed by God. I believe that we are all on the portal of heaven. That we can work the works of God. Being one who's been convicted that you've been only relating to God in thought, about thoughts about God, rather than calling out to Him, Abba, Father. And you're saying, Lord, I want you to not only but I want you to be real to me. I'm yours, O Lord. I've heard thy voice. Come, Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Jesus. We thank you for the miracles we've seen, and we thank you right now that you say it's not enough anymore. You are taking us to the next bigger miracle, God. And Lord, we ask every fear that distracts us, in Jesus' name, would you strengthen us to keep moving towards your portal, Lord God, with you. Strengthen our focus. Strengthen our commitment. Strengthen our covenant right now. We pray even now for those, God, not here, that as a church, Lord, you would strengthen the structure of our faith in you, Lord. Yes, Lord. Because, Lord, we do. Lord, we, we do want you. We hear the call today that, God, we are going to see bigger things in the very end when we see you face to face. So, Lord, we pray right now you will move us to the next step of that, even now. For each one of us, Lord, show us what it is that's putting out to the deep. Let us know exactly what you're telling us to do. And Lord, help us, each one of us in that, Lord.